I'm Christopher Lydon. This is The Connection. Our guest is the reigning monarch of American fiction, Toni Morrison. Time Magazine, in a cover story, calls her the great American storyteller. And on the strength of her new novel, Paradise, she's being recognized anew by critics and also by the mass audience which she created as a mythmaker, a giant canvas painter, an extravagant fount of poetic and symbolic language on the grandest scale. Toni Morrison won the Nobel Literature Prize in 1993. She is not an easy read, as the New York Times Review of Paradise noted. Her prose is dense, repetitive, obscure, requiring close scrutiny and concentration, and yet she has made it worth it for millions of grateful readers. Paradise reigns in the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list. Oprah plugs it, Starbucks carries it. It's a book you see people reading on the subway, men, women, Younger, older, black, white, the fable maker Toni Morrison seems to have revived a story reading impulse that runs far and wide in what was supposed to be a video crazed, dumbed down popular culture. The door prize this connection hour goes to the caller who can identify and explain this Toni Morrison phenomenon and the power of this serious and difficult literary fiction that not only sells like hotcakes but is talked about, held close to the heart identified with, adored, in household titles like Beloved, Song of Solomon, The Bluest Eye, Sula, and Jazz, and now Paradise. Welcome, Toni Morrison. As I said, I've, I've only read this book once, the first of maybe five times that it may take. I'm struck overall by how how difficult this is for, uh, for millions and millions of readers, but millions and millions of readers love the challenge and get something important here. What's... What's going on? We thought reading was passe. Well, I think we learned somehow that reading was reading journalism, um, that it was flat. It's the big mistake I made for the first 50 <laughs> years of my life, reading journalism and writing it. <laughs> Good journalism is fantastic, but literary work can do something more complicated. Um, they're two different goals, but I often hear people question me about um, things I thought were very simple in a book, the fact that it's not linear, um, the fact that there are uh, more complicated uh, sentence structures and so on. So I don't think uh, anything has happened to literature. I think that um, the kinds of reading experiences we've had these latter generations has just been less demanding. Well, but what's changed it? Really, I find this enormously interesting. I know high school kids who who are thought to be sort of post-literate, who eat you up and know you very, very well. I can't really account for it, but I've always believed in a kind of ideal state that if the literature had a powerful narrative and if the language opened itself up for the reader's imagination and participation mm -hmm. rather than closed it off, if you could couple something relevant and beautiful, mm -hmm. that there would be an enormous readership for that. Enormous readership. Mm -hmm. What's the test of relevancy? Um, that a book changes or seems to change from reading to reading. Mm -hmm. uh, that the later you read it, it's, you're a different person or the book is a different book. Mm -hmm. The ones that I reread the ones that other people reread are not books that are um, 
they're static in one sense, but every time I go back, there's something different. It's an interesting definition of relevancy is 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 rereadable. I mean, you've taken several leaps there. Not about relevancy does not mean about uh, teenage crises or no. heartthrobs or race necessarily or sex or politics. You're talking about something quite different. Fundamental debates about uh, what we're doing here, why, mm-hmm. how, and who we are, and the struggle. The difficulty it is to get from area A to area B. They're very complicated, they're very intricate, and the fundamental questions are the same. It's love and death. <laughs> very simple. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's, a, there's so much going on in this new book, Paradise, I don't know where to begin. Um, in short, it's a, it's a kind of 100-year history of a town called Ruby, settled by sla- former slaves and children of slaves in the late 19th century in the wilds of Oklahoma. And it's also about a, a community outside the community of women in a convent. Um, in this whole thing, there is, among other things, a sort of theological social debate between the two ministers yes. in the community, Reverend Pulliam and Reverend Meisner. Reverend Meisner is a kind of... Um, He's a kind of uh, signal of trouble that arrives in the 60s, but he's a serious man. I wish you'd introduce him and tell us um, the freight that he carries in this story. Meisner. Yes. Meisner's young. He's been involved in the civil rights movement. He's sensitive to and keenly aware of the powerful changes that were going on in the late 60s. Uh, His nemesis or his colleague, um, Reverend Pulliam, is uh, an Old Testament uh, minister, a patriarch, classic, uh, well-educated, and, you know, has no patience whatsoever for these changes uh, in what young people are saying. He wants obedience. And the sermon that uh, takes place during one major scene in the novel at the wedding is designed to illustrate that (laughs) confrontation. I'm dying to hear it in your voice. Um, Pulliam becomes, in effect, the, uh, the the guest preacher, and he preempts the he preempts <laughs> the case. It's a definition of God, too. <laughs> yes, he is asked to speak as a guest speaker, a guest preacher at a wedding, but he takes that opportunity to um, issue another sort of manifesto. I'll read a little. Please. Let me tell you about love. That silly word you believe is about whether you like somebody or whether somebody likes you, or whether you can put up with somebody in order to get something or someplace you want, or you believe it has to do with how your body responds to another body, like robins or bison, or maybe you believe love is how forces or nature or luck is benign to you in particular, not maiming or killing you, but if doing, but if so doing, doing it for your own good. Love is none of that. There is nothing in nature like it, not in robins or bison or in the banging tails of your hunting dogs, and not in blossoms or suckling foal. Love is divine only and difficult always. If you think it is easy, you're a fool. If you think it is natural, you're blind. It is a learned application without reason or motive, except that it is God. Now, the answer to that from the younger minister is 
an entirely different concept of God and love. He says, He held the crossed oak in his hands, urging it to say what he could not, that not only is God interested in you, he is you. The, the elder <laughs> Pulliam had said explicitly... Um, you have to earn it. You have to work for it. God is, you know, the master. You are lesser. You should be on your knees. And furthermore, uh, that God, he said, he said, what, how do you know that you graduated from this school? <laughs> he says, you don't. What you do know is that you are human and therefore educable and therefore capable of learning how to learn and therefore interesting to God who is interested only in himself, which is to say he is on, interested only in love. Do you understand me? God is not interested in you. He's interested in love and the bliss it brings to those who understand and share that interest. Exactly. That's quite different. It's very different indeed. From God being you and, God, and the spirit residing inside. One is... a individual and liberating, and the other is obedient and uh, reverential entirely. But those are the debates between the Old and the New Testament. The New Testament brings the message unheard of in the world before, which was love. So this is a conversion of God as personal individual love versus God as a benign figure who may or may not issue and invite his people into his realm. This is one of the many incredibly daunting questions that Toni Morrison makes familiar, makes real, makes human, makes very, very popular in her novels and in the new one from which she's reading Paradise. Our phone is 1-800-423-8255 or 1-800-423-TALK. You know, I, I, I read this book with um, uh, kind of awe. Where, where in the world did this story come from in your own head? This story of freedmen in Oklahoma, uh, this oh, history? I uh, did some research. I was always interested in uh, the conflict between uh, African-Americans and immigrants. Uh, I don't mean recent immigrants or even early in. Uh, immigrants in the 1920s, but it's ancient. It's very old because you remember uh, these Africans came from a home to this place mm -hmm. looking for another home after the war. And so there was this excited press to find and build whole communities that were safe, prosperous places mm -hmm. after uh, Reconstruction and during Reconstruction. And Oklahoma was the ideal place because of the land that was being given away. You know, it's called a Sooner State. People went down and took as much land as they could uh, farm uh, once the Indians were forced aside. And there were many black communities that did that. There are 15, 20 completely black-owned towns in Oklahoma alone during that time. You came upon their 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 adds their own self-identifying phrase, come prepared or not at all. Right. A marvelous line well, with many resonances. What did it mean <coughs> to you? They, they, they basically hung out this as a kind of statement about themselves and a sort of caution to anybody who joined them. 
Yes, they were doing what was reasonable. They were establishing a new town. They didn't want to take people who couldn't support themselves for a couple of years until the town got on its feet. And it reminded me a little bit of contemporary debates about very, very poor people in this country, uh, what the meaning of work is, what we move from welfare to workfare, how we now assume poor people have made themselves poor and that we're not responsible for them at all. They have nothing to do with the social good. And that was reflected in the... Uh, I'm not debating these at the moment, but I'm suggesting that that come prepared or not at all meant you are responsible for your resources, you mm -hmm. are the one who has to uh, take care of yourself, don't expect the community to take care of you. Mm -hmm. So when 200 slaves walked to these areas, this is historical fact, and they arrived at one of these homesteading sites, and they had no money, and they had no resources, uh, they were ragged, they were turned away. So that's just an aside or footnote in the narrative that I was reading in this history book. But for me, it was a wide open door <laughs> of a story. What happened to those people who had, of all the rejections they must have received in their lives, this last one must have been devastating because these were freedmen rejecting freedmen ex-slaves rejecting ex-slaves. So it was their fortune I wanted to uh, to track. The town you create, Ruby, Oklahoma, stayed intact and, and in a certain sense its own kind of paradise into the late 1960s and then all kinds of trouble developed. I want to go to the phone calls but I'd like you to sort of account for uh, or just give us a little handle on the troubles of the 1970s between uh, between men and women, between uh, the community and the world, in the whole culture surrounding them that finally reaches the paradise of Ruby, Oklahoma. Some of the issues that were stirring and bubbling in the 60s seep into Ruby. Vietnam veterans returning, um, dysfunctional, uh, women being a little disobedient, children asking questions and not taking orders from their parents, sexual license. These rule breakings were deeply disturbing to the citizens and particularly the old, the new fathers of Ruby, Oklahoma. And accompanying these internal breaks that they seem not prepared to handle, they weren't going to waver or change their ways, coupled with that was this mm -hmm building full of very different women, you know, women who had been running from men, running from pain and hurt, and who were quite broken and had collected in the convent about 15 miles from Ruby. Toni Morrison is our guest. Her new novel is called Paradise, uh, one in a series of important novels that have almost on her own uh, changed the reading habits of this whole country. We're we're talking with one of the real spectacular myth makers and storytellers of the whole world, Toni Morrison this hour, 1-800-423-8255, makes the Toni Morrison connection in the age of Toni Morrison. <laughs> Adam is calling from Somerville, Massachusetts. 
thank you very much for taking my call. And Ms. Morrison, it's a, a pleasure to hear you on the radio. Thank you. Um, I have a question about your comment regarding what, what you call the Old and New Testament. Um, I was running around the house, so forgive me if I misheard a little bit, but you made a distinction between the qualities of love and the two works. Yes. And it seemed that, well, I know in a lot of rabbinic commentary, love is very central. You know, Havat Israel, the love of Israel is a very central theme. Um, I'm curious what you, how do you, what sources do you use to make this distinction? And, you know, I, I certainly agree there are profound theological differences between the Hebrew and Christian Bible, but I would never have thought that love was one of them. So I'm curious to hear more about that. Adam, interesting question. There may be no answer to that question, but the question scores on its own. All right. No, you're right. There's love in both the Old and the New Testament, uh, spiritual love as well as carnal love. But the entrance of the Christ into the New Testament with a special kind of message about uh, the absence of force, another kind of love was his genius, and it was very different. It was very new. I think all religions talk about respect and uh, caring for one another. Um, but no one had spoken the way um, Christ and his disciples spoke later on in the New Testament. And it was out of their uh, remarks that come the notion of personal, individual love, not community mm-hmm. love, but individual love. Uh, Adam, do you want to add to that? And, or, and, and can I just also add the footnote that in the context here is is two facets of God, facets of love, both in a Christian uh, black American church context. I mean, it, it is a, it's an incorporation of several ideas in one context in a way. Sure. Well, you know, I think, I guess if I were to describe the most profound theological difference between the Hebrew and Christian Bible, I would talk more about the role of uh, flesh is, you know, Christ is the Word made flesh, and in the Hebrew Bible, where uh, the Word really stands on its own. Well, that's and, precisely okay. the point. God, the man is made flesh out of God's love. So it is the love of the flesh as opposed to the Word. That's what I meant when I said personalized love. Adam, thank you. 1-800-423-8255 makes the Tony Morrison connection. Jennifer is calling from Lynn. Hello. Hello, uh, Jennifer. Morrison. Uh, I have to say, first of all, that it's a cold comfort being able to talk to you on the radio since I was supposed to go see you last night but could not get out of work in time. <laughs> so I wandered around Faneuil Hall desperately searching for an open door. Oh, um, I'm so sorry. No, that's fine. Thank you. Um, but I did want to comment back to um, Christopher Lydon's question about why um, your work is so resonant um, to both literate and um, supposedly non-literate people. And I don't think it really clicked on me till this morning that um, perhaps uh, in an age where people see icons and visions and images is so important, both through a computer and MTV and whatever, what have you, um, I think your work does that, literarily. And I think that perhaps um, we're more receptive to that, um, that type of image now, I don't know if you agree with that, but um, that's what it, it occurred to me. And I also, I mean, obviously your work would be brilliant in any age, but I think that we might be more receptive to it now. And I think you've done something for American culture that every other culture has had, but we maybe haven't had till now, those kind of divine, reasonless, um, heroic figures. I mean, 
I don't know if there's another figure in American literature like Beloved. I mean, how can you conjure a being? <laughs> I think, you know, I've heard that observation made once or twice before about the imagistic quality of the work, mm-hmm. uh, the production of real pictures, uh, visual, uh, powerful visual images. So what you're suggesting may jibe with some of the comments of a friend of mine who um, made some observation about imagistic qualities, and you're suggesting that it might just be easier now because this generation mm-hmm. is accustomed to images in another sense. Jennifer, uh, what did you mean when you said there's never been another character like Beloved? Well, I think that I mean, part of it is the American culture is so practical, and we need proof. <laughs> and Beloved but defies reason. But at the, And maybe I'm just limiting my um, lexicon of, of figures, but I think that um, she so, Ms. Morrison so successfully defends the character, yet if you take it apart on reason, it just does not make sense. And I <laughs> don't think we've seen it that way before and, but in, in our current culture. Well, we've had 19th century major unreasonable characters in Melville, for example. But I think um, right. recently it's true that in sort of naturalistic, realistic writing tends to narrow the scope of uh, life and narrow the scope of the possibility of what a character can do. And that was anathema to me. I really wanted to break through that and say these characters are not bigger than life. They are as big as life. Exactly. Well, thank you. I think we needed it. Jennifer, thank you. 1-800-423-8255. John is calling from Mattapan. Hi, Hello, John. This is, you know me, this is John Borders. I'm the preacher of Morning Star Baptist Church. Thank you, Reverend Borders, for calling. Yes, and I first wanted to comment about the Old and New Testament differences. I think one <laughs> thing that... Do you want to I cast yourself as either Reverend <laughs> Pulliam or Reverend Meisner here? <laughs> one thing stands in the difference, I think. It's the word propitiation. God is love in the Old Testament, but he's also a God of terror. And in the New Testament, the terror is taken out because the Christ has become the propitiation. But anyway, I wanted to say to Tony Morrison, it's an honor and a privilege to finally hear your voice up close and talk to you. Thank when you. you. When you write and when you speak, I seem to hear the rhythm of your soul. And I know a lot of your words and ideas and characters have been born out of much pain and much brooding. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about how some of your pains have inspired you. And I, I write every week sermons, but I'm desirous to be a writer. And I write, I feel the strength so bad sometimes I want to taste it, but I'm afraid to climb that mountain. How do you start? How, if you want to be a writer, how do you go about it? Thank you. Very good. But John, you should stay on the line. Maybe she wants to be taught how to, how to be a preacher. Who knows? Okay, I'll stay on. <laughs> No, I'm uh, inter- I'm happy, first of all, for your answer about the uh, succinct, dis- uh, distinct, uh, succinct and distinct difference between the Old and the New Testament. Thank you. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say about the difficulty writing, equaling or coming out of pain, knowledge via pain, is that you keep, when I was writing Beloved, for example, I found that emotionally the most difficult book I ever wrote. Some of the others were technically more difficult. But when I was writing Beloved, I would, you know, take a deep breath and say, oh, you know, I don't think I can really do this justice, etc. Mm. Then I would caution myself 
and remind myself that if those people could live that life, the least I could do would be to imagine it Mm. in an unblinking way. I didn't have to actually live it. So it made me, you know, sort of mitigated the pain and made me feel not just encouraged but capable of um, representing their emotions and their thoughts and their pain. Oh, that's awesome. Um, did you, uh, forgive me, but uh, John Borders, excuse me for just interrupting one sec. Did you imagine the pain, or, ha- or were you transposing pain out of your own experience? Toni Morrison. No, it was. I had no experience that came anywhere near that, except being a parent. So you try to imagine yourself in a situation like that, where you had to make that kind of fundamental choice, and those choices have been made in other historical uh, moments other than slavery, but I mean, even on a small domestic scale, but having to make that decision and finding it impossible is what made it possible for me to think, I can't do this, I can't judge her. So who was able to judge her? And I felt nobody, really, except the daughter who died, which made me either have the courage or abandon the project of having the child come back and make the judgment. John Borders, you didn't tell us enough about the story you, you want to imagine on your own, and, 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 and you've still got a minute to ask for some writing tips here from a master. Well, you're exactly right. I'm, I'm looking at a story in my own life out of the ministerial context about a minister in a church that goes through a, a great deal of things. I think the church is a perfect format for a lot of different stories being told at one time. And I wrote three chapters, and I lived with these people, and it was the most exciting thing I've ever done. And then I lost it during a flood in my basement, and I just don't know how to start again. Oh, dear. Um, John, I, the, you, I, want, I want to see the first chapter. This is an important minister in an important church. Uh, do you talk about the shooting in the church, John? No, no. Uh, although I relate to some of the things that happened in the church, the, the story... It, that I'm, the story that I'm working on has a lot to do with the different personalities that I think okay. I see in the church. Okay. It's a fascinating project. The, the, you can't the, let a little water interfere between you and that narrative. Right, and, and, and the notion of a church as a, a metaphor, as a kind of ship of fools in that sense, yes. but a family uh, is, is, is marvelous. Tony Morrison's our guest. This is The Connection from WBUR Boston. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is The Connection. The Toni Morrison Connection is our, with the author of a new novel, Paradise, the woman who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1993, a woman who, as we were saying, and I don't think with, just to flatter her, uh, has revived or reinvented or reestablished a kind of huge, serious reading impulse in this whole culture that we'd almost forgotten was there. This is difficult fiction. It's important themes. These are grown-up issues that young people read in vast numbers. Everybody seems to read, and everybody seems to be touched by in important ways. I'm very glad you made the point before the break that this is the work of uh, the imagination. In some sense, it's out of your own control. But I read this book, and I suspect you do, and wonder where in the world does this come from? <laughs> where do these, where do, uh, the, the, the imagistic quality that you spoke about, the painterly quality, the visual 
production in this work. Do you know where it comes from? I know how I craft it. I know that I see scenes, and sometimes colors move me through scenes, and I use it in a very painterly way. I'm much more influenced by painters, I think, than writers sometimes. Uh, when I work, I have scenes that duplicate each other in the same palette in order to suggest to the reader the connection that may not be the narrative connection, but it's the uh, the connection that colors can make. I've sometimes found figures or suggestions or silhouettes in paintings that seem to me to be the placement of the characters in a scene or on a set. Mm-hmm. I might see movement. But that whole area of of the imaginary may have been repressed or depressed among us younger people for a long time, people of generations that followed mine, because I keep hearing teachers tell their students in writing classes to write what you know, write what you know, write about your own experience, and that may be valuable in some way, but I think it's limiting. You should write about what you don't know. Mm. You can always do the research, but in order to stretch the imagination, to um, tease it, um, to literally create. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be confined to the palette that is just your own. I never, I think once in my life I wrote about somebody I knew, and that was in the first book I ever wrote. But for me, that's baked bread. There's no place for me to operate in it. There's no place for me to invent. Mm -hmm. And that is what makes the project of writing exciting for me. And I think even if you know a person, that you're writing about. You have to have license to alter, to change, and not just the names, but in order to keep it from being good journalism and to turn into good literature. Yes. The imagination is... is. Uh, I think this is very important to hear. Yeah. Because we, I, I think we... People distrust imaginative work. Exactly. And the uh, truth is, I don't think we really believe for the most part, that it happens that way. We think people are always writing, rewriting their autobiography of the morning yes. or something. Or that it has to be either autobiographical or that you have to have learned it somewhere or that if you did sort of think it up, they that's why that question is always so pernicious. Where does it come from? And you want to say, ask Mozart. <laughs> I mean, where does it come from? It's there or you create it. It has an ineffable quality, but it's not something you can buy at Sears and Roebuck. Or something you can account for in your own story, although we have to just touch on it. You're a child of Lorain, Ohio, uh, not, not, a, not a big city, not a small town, not a, not a stereotypical place in any way, a bookish girl from the beginning, yes. an editor before she was a writer, uh, a prolific reader, all your life, I gather, to this day, did a graduate work on Virginia Woolf and William Faulkner at Cornell. Does any of that history uh, account for the sort of the magic of uh, uh, Mozart's creation or, or, your, or Toni Morrison's creation here? I think so. I think being allowed to imagine, um, being a radio child, listening to stories Let's in my radio. family where you have to work 
you have to imagine the colors, the sets, the scenes. It was not delivered to you the way it is in uh, movies and television. They insisted that we tell stories as children. So we got into the habit of trying to present and perform them. And of course, I was, you know, an avaricious and very hungry reader. That's the way I spent most of my, you know, time. And um, all my life, everything I've done, whether it's editing or teaching or writing, has always been about books. 1-800-423-8255 makes the Toni Morrison connection. Vanessa is calling from Boston. Hello. Hello, Vanessa. Hi. I'm surprised I got on. Um, Ms. Morrison, I just want to first of all thank you. Um, I'm, I'm so happy to hear your voice. Thank I have you. one thing left to meet you. <laughs> um, but I have a comment and then a question. Um, I'm one of those high school... Well, when I was in high school, I was first introduced to um, your work, um, to school and to my older sister and other black women in the community. And um, I'm happy for your recent um, popularity and success, but it kind of angers me um, a little bit. Because Tell me why. I just, I just feel that you're such a great writer, and I feel like certain black writers get ghettoized. And um, not only, you are a great American writer. I think sometimes in the past it's been, oh, you're such a great black American or black woman writer. But I think you're such a living treasure. And just, <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy when I see um, your book on Oprah and all the popularity. But I just what feel makes like you angry? I just feel like it's, um, it has to do. <laughs> it should have been there before. Oh, I see. I see. So, oh, and uh, one last question I want to ask. I heard that um, that Beloved was going to be made into a film. Yes. Is that true? Yes, they f- finished shooting it. It's oh, they being, already did. Oh. Mm-hmm, and I think it's being edited now as we speak. Uh, should we know more about it? Who's in it? Oh. Who's directing it? Well, a little bit. Jonathan Demme is directing it. Um, Oprah Winfrey has a leading role in it. Uh, Danny Glover has a leading role in it, and some really, really first-rate uh, actresses playing Denver and Beloved. Did you do the screenplay? No. One eight hundred four two three eight two five five makes the Toni Morrison connection. Dorothy's calling from Brookline, Massachusetts. Yes, hello. Uh, I did get to see you last night at Faneuil Hall, and I have to say it was a spectacular evening. So thank, thank you. you. Um, I had read in, in an interview while you were working on Paradise that you looked at it as a revision, in the truest sense of the word, looking back at the bluest eye. And I'd like to know if, in fact, when as you completed it, you still saw it that way, and if so, if you could comment on that. Um, I think I remember saying something a little bit different, that I wanted to revise the bluest eye. That was one observation I made because... I felt I knew better how to write that book now. And there were certain technical things I think I learned in the last 25 years. And uh, each book has been so different for me, a brand new set of obstacles that I put out there for myself in order to not repeat uh, the same narrative or the same characters. So that frequently what I've learned in a book before uh, doesn't help me when I write the next book. But you, you, she misunderstood you, I think. You, you, Paradise is not a rethinking of the bluest eye. No, I think that... Except that it's out of... No, I think the information she got from the interview 
was probably misleading her. Fair enough. 1-800-423-8255. Jim is calling from Concord, Massachusetts. Yes, hi. I'm, I'm really pleased. I, I'm like, Unlike the other callers, I'm used to Tony Morrison's voice because I'm legally blind, and I'm reading or rather listening to the book on tape, and it's Tony Morrison that reads it. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I have the, the difficult choice of wanting to finish it but not wanting to finish it. <laughs> um, I wanted to mention that um, you wrote a whole series of short pieces in The New Yorker about um, gentle woman gardening and, and activities, I think, in southern Vermont. No, you're, you're, you're thinking of Jamaica Kincaid. That's right. I am. I am confused. <laughs> <laughs> also wonderful. But I, so my question had to do with that, and I, I guess it's not appropriate then. Maybe, maybe Tony Morrison can help you with your garden, Jim. <laughs> Try her. <laughs> I used to be an avid gardener. Uh-huh. Avid. But now, you know, it's a little difficult bending down <laughs> and digging holes in the earth. One eight hundred four two three eight two five five. Linda's calling from Jamaica Plain. Yes. Good morning. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. Uh, thank you so much. I'm pleased to be on the air with a, a writer of such great influence on me. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask Dr. Morrison um, what the influence of the spoken word is on her writing. Um, for example, in the previous uh, reading, we used the juxtaposition of robins and bison in describing love. <laughs> And um, I get a different experience in reading that than I do from listening to it. And it reminds me of how the voice, kind of with a capital V, influences good poetry. And I'm curious how, uh, again, that voice with a capital V uh, influences prose writing, such as Dr. Morrison's. Oh, that's uh, important to me, to have a quality of the spoken word in the novel, not just in the dialogue Mm -hmm. in which I'm trying to recreate the way the dialogue probably sounds for each character, but to have what we call the editorial fabric or the or the descriptions have a quality that's oral. Um, that may be, first of all, because I'm interested in it. Second of all, because the way I remember narrative always as stories that were told, whether it was among us or by older people in the family, um, or whether it was, as we were mentioning earlier, uh, radio. At the same time, I wanted not to. Uh, I wanted to blend the quality of print, which is quiet, on the page, with the power of the spoken word, so that it's like, I suppose, when fo- stories were first told, you get a feeling that there's some anonymous narrator who is not in total control, but who is sort of feeding you for your imagination. Mm this interesting story. That quality I like a lot. Linda, thank you for the question that provoked such a wonderful answer. (laughs) 1-800-423-TALK makes the Toni Morrison connection. Craig is calling from Boston. Hi. Morning, Craig. (laughs) Good morning. I am, um, wow, I've never done this before. It's great to be on the air. Um, (laughs) Toni Morrison, I love your work. And I think that... um, when I was hearing people talk about the literate and the non-literate people devouring it, one of the first things I thought as I was um, talking to a good friend of mine about it was that we feel like you've done a great trick on the American public in some way because I feel like what you've done is you've made, you love language so much mm. that you've taken this thing that we call black English and you've masked, is probably the wrong word, 
but you mask it with the Queen's English mm. such that when I pick up the book, I have to read it out loud. <laughs> and I know <laughs> that a lot of my good girlfriends who don't have the Harvard degrees are doing the same thing, <laughs> and they're getting every word of it. <laughs> because you have interspersed good black English in all of your work. Well, and so I think that's why it has such a wide appeal. That's uh, interesting, and it's accurate, because one of the things I wanted to do was to capture the power and the beauty of what people call black English. For me, it was just the way people talk. Right. But to put the vernacular, <laughs> the vernacular, alongside the lyric, standard English, sermonic, all of the levels of English that we speak, mm. but not to discredit the vernacular, right. to use its power. So all of it's sort of interwoven into the language. I'm happy to know that you recognize it. Oh, yeah. Craig, I, I'm very happy that you put your finger on it very elegantly, too. And I, But I'm also wondering what, what do, what are white readers, including me, picking up in the power of that language. Well, white readers, I think, hear black language all the time. Right. They see it on use TV, it all the they time. hear it in rap, that they use it all the time. Right. So they're very familiar with it, too. They just don't want to call it what it is. <laughs> so that when they read it, they just re it resonates with them, and they go, you girl, you got to go get this book. <laughs> and they start reading it out loud to each other. And I work at this real estate firm as a temp, and I hear these, you know, 45-year-old uh, white real estate brokers, male, who've been doing this job forever, <laughs> walking into a room and saying, don't be doing that to me. <laughs> and I'm like, where is this coming from? But I know where it's coming from. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. 1-800-423-8255. Maria is on a car phone. Hello. Hello, Maria. Yes, I wanted to ask Ms. Morrison, um, what informs her decision-making in her writing, in a sense that you spoke a little bit in the, earlier in the show about the difference between reporting a story and then speaking in the language of the novel. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, knowing the plot is one thing, but um, being receptive to the language is another, and also knowing the point of entry. Uh, into a story. When does it start? Who tells it? Does no one tell it? Or is it, as in Paradise, everybody has a perspective and a point of view, and it's uh, some of them are conflicting. In any case, different novels require different kinds of techniques and craftsmanship in order to get the ultimate message or group, a you know, it's really a collection of messages across. And I usually know what at least where I want the reader to go and where I want to leave her or him. Are you constantly aware of the tools that you have at your disposal? I mean, little things like you spoke about linear uh, storyline versus something else, uh, something like the, the language I use, alliteration, anything like that, more technical tools? All of its technique. Mm -hmm. All of its technique. I mean, I can be very uh, visionary when I'm thinking about a novel for about 18 months or two years. But by the time I get to the actual writing, where I put the on the page, only technique can help me there. Only craft. And I'm conscious of every aspect of it. Only technique, only craft, as opposed to what? Automatic writing and writing one sentence and then another <laughs> and letting it work. It's the constant revisions following that. Because the point is to make it look un- Right, written, to make it not self-conscious, to make it look 
um, as though it just appeared, as though it were written mm -hmm. in one fell swoop, seamlessly. Um, but that takes time, and it takes revision. So I know um, the deceit of language, the seduction of language. I know how to place things in a sequence so that readers will respond viscerally or intellectually or just mm -hmm. with pleasure to certain things. I know what colors do, what sound does, what rhythm does, and what and you know juxtaposition of images. You know after the 19th revision, you mean to say? I know in the beginning, but do. I don't always have it perfectly okay. done. But I know what I'm striving for. I know if I want to make um, a gesture of cooking, just food, that women cook. But I want to say something about those women while they're preparing a meal. So I just don't write, I know that, and I know what I want the food to be, and I know I want the gestures to be. But I may have to write that scene six or seven times so that the flow and the ingredients and the choice of ingredients and the colors of the ingredients yeah. work together to make a very sensual scene and a scene that says something about the character who's doing it. That's a lot. That's a big lesson right there for John Borders and the rest of us. Um, <laughs> I, there are so many perspectives. There are so many surprises. There are so many corners of this canvas in Paradise. I, I, I presume a lot of them surprise you or, or, or come up and s sneak up behind you. Well, Paradise in particular was the first book I ever wrote when I really did not know how it ended. Interesting. Okay. So that was surprising. Four two three eight two five five. Thank you, Marla. Lee is on a car phone. Well, I'm here, but I'm not on a car phone. Okay. I wonder how some of these people actually do talk on a car phone. I can barely talk when I'm sitting down at home. <laughs> but I, I, I wish, if I may, uh, to ask you to redirect um, your, your thoughts to earlier comments you made about uh, a love um, in the Old and New Testament and kind of think about that in terms of what you were speaking of about the imagination which moved me so much because I feel that sometimes arbitrary distinctions are made between uh, those who advocate writing about what you know and and what you were so eloquently saying about writing about the imagination because I, I think they aren't necessarily two different things because for someone who has a vision who feels the potentialities and the possibilities of how life can be how the dream of love can be both in a creative way, as you perhaps as a writer, and I as just an individual feeling and other people, but also people who have dreamed a conception, a theological conception of love. Um, I, I just wanted you to speak more on that, if you could, because uh, I have friends I speak to about this, and I'm asking essentially, I guess, what is the future of the dream, of the vision of things as they seemingly could be. In other words, the garden, so to speak, it pains me individually, actually, to live and experience, as I get older, the, um, the, uh, w the withering of the dream, <clears throat> and perhaps the withering of my own hope, of the p potentiality of that actually occurring. And I, I'm not perhaps as orthodoxly religious <clears throat> as uh, I grew up to be. I'm more uh, of a priest. Let's let Tony Morrison answer, but do you want to sort of color in a little bit your dream or the garden you're talking about? I 
wanted to just focus on, for me, the, the Orphic myth, which to me was the most eloquent. Wow. Um, That's a big leap. Okay. Yeah, of, of just bringing literally inanimate things to life let, let, by let, that vision of imagination. Lee, thank you. Tony Morrison, that's a big question to wrap us up. <laughs> well, I think uh, his anxiety is um, real, palpable. Uh, I didn't mean to suggest that writing about what one knows is always limiting, but young people somehow may not understand that, that what one knows includes one's imagination, includes one's vision, includes questioning things, searching for answers that we don't have. I think some of the best things that have happened in terms of improving just the quality of life in the world have been simple visions. There was a time when we could not even imagine living in a world without nuclear bombs. Now that's policy. But it was just somebody's dream many, many years ago. And then it caught on. And now it's real political efforts to get rid of nuclear bombs. That's the power of the imagination. Tony Morrison, you've given us an important lesson, not only in your work, but I mean, just this morning on the connection to to believe in what uh, you don't know and to to <laughs> lean on your imagination, to live in your imagination, to live uh, in that spirit. Thank you enormously for joining oh, us. Oh, this has been wonderful. Thanks to the callers, too, who had the nerve to talk live to Tony, uh, Tony Morrison. <laughs> we had help today from Aaron Bishop, Rebecca Smuckler, Lydia Molin, Mark Navin, and Kim Bichari. Every day from Louis Cronin, John Holt, Jill Kaufman, Keith Shields, and J.J. Sullen, and Mary McGrath. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is The Connection from WBUR Boston. Thank you.